Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm William Dyer, and this is Dyer Conversations. Thanks for joining me on today's podcast, where we actually have a special guest, Dr. H.C. Felder. I met uh, Dr. Felder here at a conference this past year down in North Carolina, where he was doing one of the breakout sessions, and I realized that he wrote a book. And if you're watching this podcast on the video, you'll see this book right here, The African-American Guide to the Bible. And that was very interesting to me. I was kind of wanting to see where he took that. And so I wanted to bring him on the podcast to talk about who he is, where he's been, and then writing the book. So Dr. Felder, thank you, sir, for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me on Dire Conversations. (laughs) Hey, It's a pleasure of mine. Uh, It was cool to get to meet you a little bit at the conference and get to hear uh, your breakout session. And so I'm excited for, you know, my audience to, to be able to hear a little bit about you um, and not just the book, but also the man behind the book. You know, we're doing this podcast here in uh, 2022. So if anybody knows what's going on, they're not living under a rock. You know, we have some racial tension happening in America right now. So the ministry that you have, especially, you know, the kind of the shoes that you've walked in, the life that you've had, and now this this um, study that you've done, I'm sure has provided just an ample amount of opportunity to talk to people, especially in the African-American community, right? Yes. Yes, it, it has. And uh, um, I've been getting plenty of opportunities to to speak, to have platforms like this with, with African-Americans interviewing me. Uh, a lot of them are not African-Americans. And I get all kinds of emails from people who are struggling with their faith who are struggling with the whole idea that Christianity is the white man religion. I mean, I get I get letters from or emails from people all the way in Africa who are struggling with these issues. So although when I first started this, I sort of thought the book would be a one and done, and then I could move on to something else in apologetics, maybe the resurrection. Well, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> that just was not going to happen because... You know, once the book came out, then the word got out and I started getting invitations. I started getting requests to speak and it just sort of blossomed. I sort of accepted that this is my this is my niche in ministry, sort of accepted that now and just trying to um, minister to as many people, open up as many minds as I possibly can. Yeah, that's awesome. So I, I kind of want to go through the book a little bit. Um, you know, I would suggest anybody get it and read through it. I was piecing through it, excuse me, piecing through it myself, you know, and you start off the book kind of like the first part where you're going through the reliability of the Bible and and that's all, you know, great stuff, similar things that I'm studying in school right now. But when you start getting more to the, the racial aspects, um, you know, that's where I think, again, you have a unique perspective here and, and have some, some pretty insightful things to say. And so the one part it starts off in your book, you, you begin to talk about race just in general, right? Like, what is race? And a quote from your book, you said this, we must first look at what race is not before we can understand what race is. You want to um, expound upon that a little bit? Well, yes, yes. Um, when we think about race, uh, you know, we think about sometimes a lot of the stereotypes that people have uh, placed on people of different, you know, physical characteristics. The point I'd make is that race is not a, is not a biological concept. Like race is not biological. That, and I go into, I get a lot of evidence for this. You know, I quote people in the scientific community. I quote the Bible about this. And that the differences that we see a lot of the difference that we see, you know, are more cultural than they are anything else. So, you know, we talk about like music, we talk about like food and that type of stuff, but those things really have nothing to do with race. Those things have uh, completely to do with culture. If you took a black child and raised them up in an affluent Beverly Hills neighborhood, for those of you who, who, who may have, you know, familiar with this, you ever heard of uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? So think Carlton. <laughs> Very nice. But if you're raised in a certain environment, you that is what your culture is. Just like, you know, a lot of hoods have this one white guy 
who was raised in the hood, who culturally looks like everybody else in the hood, will gravitate to the same kind of music, same kind of food, use the same kind of language. Well, because it has nothing to do with the color of the skin. It's because that's cultural. Even some of the medical things that we are told are supposed to be of race related, like a, like a hypertension, you know, and, and those just simply aren't true. And I go through this in my book a lot. Like for instance, the, the, the places with the place with the highest hypertension is actually Germany. So I dispel a lot of those uh, myths that, that we have as far as to try to prove that we are biologically, that the races are different and they're not different, which is why I can get a heart transplant from somebody in China, a kidney transplant from somebody in India, because we are basically all the same. We are basically from Adam and Eve. And from Adam and Eve, every pigmentation that we see on earth was in their DNA. Now, the way I sort of explain race is that, and this is debated, I, I, I think you can make a good case that the Garden of Eden was in Africa or near Africa. And, and that's, that would be also lined up with the scientific community as well, the, the out of Africa theory. But as people migrated, even if it wasn't Africa, as people migrated to different parts of the world, those people who were better acclimated as far as skin pigmentation um, thrived better. They had more children. So over time, populations tend to reflect that. So people who move further north actually you know, develop lighter skin, not because people actually change skin colors, but, but the people who are lighter skin actually produce more children. They were actually healthier. Um, I was just listening to a doctor talking about how uh, ultraviolet rays can affect um, uh, uh, the immune system. So if you have a pigmentation that makes that less harmful to you, and doesn't affect your pigment, doesn't affect your immune system, then you, you're going to be healthier. Same thing about people who went south. People who were darker had a more had more shield from you know skin cancer. You know, it always a balance between ultraviolet rays and and vitamin D. And so, but I actually call that an example of what I call microevolution. What I mean is that the changes within the species. But let's not get that confused with macroevolution, which is a change of species because no far no matter how far north people went they weren't going to turn into, turn into polar bears yeah so but that's just an example of that and and so race is not a biblical concept uh race was invented uh in our recent past it's completely a social construct and uh unfortunately it is although it's not real biologically it is very real psychologically. We tend to, when we see people, we tend to classify them immediately by the, their characteristics and how they look. And I say that, yes, race was invented to divide us around the time of slavery, but it's still dividing us as, as, as much as ever. Yeah, it's interesting because I actually know a, um, a a Christian missionary that went to Africa, right? It's a white guy. He's been over there, I'm sure, like 30 years now. I mean, he's been over there most of his more, you know, most of his adult life. He's been over there longer than he's been over here in America. And his skin pigmentation is is definitely closer to you than it is to me. Um, I mean, he's pre- <laughs> he's pretty dark, you know, and I'm just like, well, yeah, you spend 30, 40 years in Africa under that sun, you know? Right. Yeah. And so imagine yeah. that over generations and, and generations. generations. So yeah. what do you, what do you find when you say these sort of things to the black community? What do you find as a response? <laughs> well, you know, there, it's like everything else. There are people who support me who, you know, who, who, who can relate to what I'm saying, who uh, are able to, to take it and, and analyze it and see the truth in it. Then there are people who just call me Uncle Tom. <laughs> but um, look, I, um, let me tell you a story, if you don't mind. Go for it. 
when I became a believer, I, you know, I, I mentioned that I was an alcoholic, uh, all that kind of stuff, right? So everybody in my family knew me as an alcoholic. And once I went to go visit, my family had a family reunion in South Carolina, where the Felders are from, really. And it was, a, and it was a family reunion there. And I'm the new Christian now, and I'm very sensitive to what people may think of me, right? So I, I go and I meet my uncle. He has this little store, and he asked me that I want to drink. Now, at this point now, God had delivered me. I didn't want anything to drink. And he said, why don't you want anything to drink? And I said, because I'm a Christian now. God has delivered me. My uncle cussed me out. He said everything that I was afraid someone was going to say to me. He said it all. I was ignorant. I was a fool. I bought a pack of lies. Murray was raped by a Roman soldier. He said it all. But big deal. He said it all. I was like, I was still standing. Oh, you know, really, that wasn't that bad. <laughs> and so when people say things to me now, it, I've already heard it all before. I mean, yeah, people like to be, you know, like, but I've realized that I have a mission that's greater than that. That is why, you know, I have uh, maybe a couple hundred videos up on my YouTube channel. I turn comments off and I don't read comments. <laughs> I was on a, I was on a Smart. show yesterday. I was on a show yesterday. It was a live stream show, which are, which are always interesting. <laughs> and oh, the haters were out there. The haters were out there calling me everything you could think of, you know. But you know, I've learned that I prefer to be biblically correct than politically correct. And and once I got past that, you know, like nobody can say anything to me I haven't heard. <laughs> Yeah, I, the comments are, you know, the, the the most vicious part of humanity, you know, can be in comment <laughs> sections on social media or on YouTube. And when I first started my YouTube channel, I would like read every single comment, you know, and I yes. would go through it and I would try to respond to it. And I just got to a point where I was like, I don't have the emotional energy for these people. You know, I, I yeah. some of them have got to be bots. There's no way these people are real. Um but yeah, like, cause I did a whole, I did a whole series on critical race theory. There was like six videos and a couple of them, they went viral. I mean, they got tens of thousands of views and I was shocked. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're getting these views. Well, all, almost like 90, maybe 80, 85% of the comments were like, you're racist, you're evil, you should go kill yourself. Like, I mean, just the worst sort of things. And I'm like, wow, man, you people, you people are haters. And, and what I found interesting, I talked about this, it's like, you know, I would quote black people, right, who were against critical race theory, like popular, you know, like people who have PhDs or some sort of degree that right. allows them to speak with authority. And they were coming out going, no, no, critical race theory is bad. And I would quote those people. And the response is, well, they're Uncle Tom's, they're sellouts. Yeah, and I, absolutely. And, I, and I'm just like, I mean, you know, you can't win for anything with these people. It doesn't matter what I, you say. I, I'm a sellout. I'm a sellout, you know, if you listen to them. But... I have to give an answer to somebody. My show is called Giving an Answer. My ministry is called Giving an Answer. But ultimately, I'm most, most concerned about the answer I've got to give. <laughs> when I'm standing before you know, the throne of God, um, well, what did you do? Did you sit in your comfort zone? Did you hide in your closet? Or did you engage the community? So this is how I look at it. Right? You're getting some good stuff today. I'm telling you, you're getting some real good stuff today. I look at my life like a football game. I love football. I have season tickets to the Panthers, even though probably going to suck this year, like we did last year. I got season tickets. I look at it like a football game. When I go to see Jesus, I want to have a uniform that is dirty. I want to have a uniform that is torn. I want to have a uniform that has blood on it. When I walk into the locker room in heaven, I want Jesus to be able to look at me and say, he was in the game. He was in the game. He was in the trenches. 
The last thing I want to do is walk in there with a white uniform on that shows that I've been sitting on a bench for my entire ministry. I want a dirty uniform. <laughs> Preach that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, I used, I say I used to because I, sp- I pretty much stopped watching sports about four years ago. I just got tired okay. of all the drama. But at, okay. growing up, I was a um, Washington Redskins fan, which is now politically incorrect. So I was a Washington fan back when they were Washington Redskins. And uh, so, so I feel you on the, we're probably going to stink again this year. We're probably going to stink yeah. again this yeah. year. Yeah, I, I, I was in D.C. I, you know, I grew up in D.C. I, of course, I was a, I was a Redskins fan. Yeah. Until yeah. I finally got on board here. But, yeah, you can relate. That, that's <laughs> that's all good. That's all good. So um, have you seen people, you know, you talk about this in your book a bit. Have you seen people in your life, in your personal life, try to justify sort of racist ideologies or racist attitudes towards other people? Well, <laughs> so I found that, and this was very true back in slavery days, it's true now. People will use whatever I call authority to justify their actions. Two of the main authorities, science and the Bible. Science is not racist. Scientists are. There are scientists who are racist. The Bible is not racist, but there are people who will read the Bible who will say it's racist. So they will take these things and they will twist them and manipulate them to say what they wanted to say so that they can feel justified and intellectual in maintaining their racist view. It's so true, you know, and that's where like, you know, as Christians, because, you know, I've grown up in the South, right? I grew up here in Virginia, um, got a lot of ties in North Carolina, um, you know, in some other Southern states. And so, you know, you see it in that deep Bible belt. Um, some of those, ra- you know, racist tendencies, I wouldn't say like necessarily overt, overt, but you see those little racist tendencies come through. Um, and that's why, like, you know, you got to have humility because, this is the same thing as like any, any other sin that we may have in our lives, whether it be pride or, you know, whatever it is. Like when we come to the scriptures, we got to let the scriptures speak to us to convict us. Um, yeah. Because, you know, if somebody has these racial tendencies, I mean, they may be completely ignorant to it. And so hopefully by the grace yeah. of God, they find, you know, find in the scriptures where they go, hmm, maybe, maybe I need to check myself and, and start looking at people a little bit, a little bit differently. Um, because there are people who, you know, if they're raised in a, a closed environment or um, community, that may be all they've ever been exposed to. And, you know, they may have not heard anything else. They so- may have heard that and, and they believe that that is true because they have really heard anything that contradicts that. Yeah. And, and the thing that I've learned in my life, you know, is I've kind of ventured out and, and I try to interact with people who are kind of from all works, walks of life, you know, like I've helped out with ministries that deal with homeless people and people addicted to drugs and, you know, just there's, I'm not going to get into me, but you know, there's a lot of different things that I've interacted with. And, and even in doing jujitsu, there's a lot of people who do jujitsu who are, you know, way far on the left end of the spectrum when it comes politically. Um, and so they look at somebody like me and they, you know, who knows what they think about me, uh, but probably not too favorably, uh, especially being a Christian and a little bit more conservative. But trying to get out of those echo chambers is so important because you start to realize that some of the narratives that you buy into are completely false. And one of the things that I like to tell people um, who may have never come to the South, right? Like in the South, there are people who fly Confederate flags and I'm not getting, yeah, I'm not getting into whether that's right or wrong. But what is interesting that I like to point out is when I went to high school, we had plenty of black people who would ride around with Confederate flags on their pickup trucks, (laughs) you know? And so that kind of, that kind of throws a little bit of a monkey wrench into people's thoughts about uh, that sort of thing. It might have been before it was so politicized Mm -hmm. because everything has become politicized now. And, you know, when you yeah. started, when you started studying about slavery in America, right? What were some mm-hmm. of the things that you looked at and went, "Wow, that's a little bit different than what I was taught or what I believed"? <laughs> okay. Well, one of the things that really uh, sort of threw me for a loop was 
One, that there were a lot of uh, blacks that had slaves. As a matter of fact, like 77%, by some estimate, 77% of free blacks also had slaves as well. You know, some of them, you know, were in businesses like hotels and restaurants, but a lot of them were plantations as well. And that those slave owners didn't treat their slaves any better. I learned that another thing that sort of, that sort of uh, really threw me for a loop is, you know, when I grew up, I grew up, I was in high school when, when Roots came out. And that really impacted me because, you know, in DC, which was like 90% black, it was, it caused a lot of tensions throughout the, you know, the, the suburbs and throughout a lot of the country, actually, you know, a lot of people are probably too young to remember this, but you know, the part that really bothered me the most was that the beginning of the movie where you see these white people going and they ca they're capturing Kunti Kente and that they're enslaving him and they're bringing him back. Fascinating when I discovered that that, that whole thing was a lie. Roos was a lie because Alex Haley plagiarized that from a book of fiction written by a white guy. So black people, white people didn't, didn't go to Africa and capture black people. What happened was, is that in Africa, you had black people enslaving other black people. Slavery has always existed. It existed long before it happened in America. Europeans enslaved Europeans. I mean, it's it just, we see it in the Bible. You see people going into captivity. We see the Jews was, they were in captivity or in slavery for, for 400 years. And slavery has always existed since mankind existed. <clears throat> but, you know, the, the idea that I had was that, you know, that these, you know, black people were, you know, forcibly taken from their home by these white people. No, they were captured by other blacks, uh, other tribes <clears throat> who kept most of the slaves for themselves. And they sold some of them to the white merchants who came and took them back to America. <clears throat> um, so I found that fascinating. Another thing that I found fascinating is that Native Americans had slaves. Well, first of all, before the white man even came, Native Americans were enslaved to Native Americans because that was just how people were. People, stronger people, enslaved weaker people. But what was most fascinating about that is that Native Americans enslaved African Americans but what I found very fascinating was that, are you familiar with the Trail of Tears? They, yes, a little bit, but probably not to the level that you are. So this was when a lot of the uh, Native American tribes in the uh, Southeast were relocated to you know, the Midwest mm -hmm. and they marched them across the country. A lot of them died, that's why I called it the Trail of Tears. What's fascinating is that a lot of these tribes that were relocated, relocated with their black slaves. And these Native American tribes fully bought into the idea of slavery. They believed that they were equal to whites and superior to blacks. They had slave laws just like the white people had slave laws. They put down slave rebellions just like white people put down slave rebellions. So those are some of the things that I found very, very fascinating when I started doing my study, these are things you won't hear hardly anywhere else. When you present that again to the black community, what is what is the response? Well, I've been accused of giving white people a pass, hmm. and, and 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 what when I'm when I'm giving a talk, I've given the talk on Christianity and slavery a lot. But when I'm giving a talk, I'm never trying to give anyone a pass. The, the context that I'm doing it whenever I give the talk is that I'm setting the stage for how slavery was before Christianity came along, how it was worldwide, how it was accepted, how, you know, they were, you know, most ancient civilizations that didn't even have a word for freedom. But my point 
And going through all of that is to show that it was Christianity that actually sparked the, the abolitionist movement, which actually is responsible for setting the foundation for the abolition of slavery worldwide. So I counter people when they say that Christianity is a slave religion by saying that it is Christianity that set the foundation for the abolition of slavery worldwide. Because of the idea that man is made in the image of God, which is what sparked the abolitionist movement, was fire across Europe, was spread throughout the rest of the world, while, which is why now their slavery is very in, very rare in very few spaces. And a lot of those places, you know, usually it's Muslims who are still involved in slavery. But the reason why slavery isn't worldwide now is because of the Christian worldview. But I'm not giving anyone a pass. I'm just trying to help people understand that slavery isn't this new invention that happened in the antebellum South. Not at all. It has always existed and probably would if it wasn't for the, the idea of Christianity. When people say slavery is long now, they're actually borrowing from the Christian worldview in order to say that. Because slavery isn't incompatible with Islam. It's not incompatible with, with uh, atheism. It's incompatible with the idea of man being made in the image of God, that man has worth because he is made in the image of God. Yeah, and I mean, even, even in the New Testament, if you just take the book of Philemon, you know, where you have this runaway slave, Onesimus, you know, and, and Paul basically, the Apostle Paul basically tells his owner, like, you need to treat him as a brother, as an image bearer, you know, with respect and dignity. And it gets way deeper than that in the New Testament theology, but like you said, the idea that every man, regardless of where he was born, what he looks like, deformities, height, weight, skin color, all the variables of man, everyone is made in the image of God and thus has inherent dignity to them. That concept Absolutely. revolutionized, like you said, the eradication of slavery. Was it as fast as we would have liked it in America? Absolutely not. And as you said, you know, you're not giving a pass to anybody. I don't give a pass to anybody either. I'm like, hey, you know, what they did back then was horrible. It's, it's disgusting. It's terrible. Now, one thing that people don't understand is the, if you think more of like the, the economic and, and cultural ramifications of, of putting yourself back in the day put yourself in the the original you know american time when when the constitution is being formed we have independence that sort of thing and, and you have slavery but you have this document that says everybody has these natural rights that are given to them by god right and everybody should have those and be protected and people are like well why do they still have slaves well okay let's say you have this whole institution of slavery in america and you just go okay tomorrow everybody is goes free okay now you know, these farms are shutting down because nobody's working them. Now you have all these people going out who don't have an education, can't read. The only job skills they have is manual labor, you know, for the most part. They don't have anywhere to live. Like, you're just basically turning them out to the wild to go die, right? It's like, that's not a good solution. And so a lot of um, right. a lot of the founding fathers, you know, like Jefferson, like Washington, these guys were for a, a slow eradication of slavery. And people right. don't think people don't think about like putting yourself in that shoes of being there at that time of going, how do we how do we eradicate this? We can't just do it overnight. It's gotta be a slow process. Have you ever right. have you ever talked about and that to people? I I haven't talked about that specifically, but what I have talked to people about, because a similar question comes up to me about well, why didn't God just outlaw slavery in the Old Testament? Why did, why does God like you know, have these laws. Why didn't he just say, you know, just outlaw it? And I have a couple of responses to that. One of my responses is, well, my main response is that, you know, it was an institution that people thought needed fixing <laughs> because they didn't have the more the moral framework of the New Testament that we have that we have, you know, now. But also, the cure would have been worse than the disease because what happens now? What happens now if you are in invading a nation, like God told the Israelites to invade the nations that were around? He was giving them the land, not because they were so great, but because those people were doing abominations. 
So what do you do with these people? There's no Guantanamo Bay. What do you do with them? What has happened historically is you either kill them, you kill the men, and you take the women and children as slaves, or you just enslave everyone. So to just abolish slavery, the cure would have been worse than the disease because what would happen is that they just would have killed everyone. The same thing was going on in Africa. Before the slave trade came around, normally what happened, and this also happened in North America with the Native American tribes, is that when another tribe, uh, one tribe attacked another tribe, usually they would just kill all the men and just take all the women as, as, as booty. So under slavery, at least people had an opportunity to live, to, to create a, a legacy. And I'm a result of some of that legacy. So to just turn around and just say, well, just outlaw this is not really understanding what was going on at the time and understanding that the cure would be far worse than the disease. Then you'll be talking about genocide then. It's interesting that you that you put a um, talked about people didn't have the moral compass, and I I like to get your take on this. Um, a thought that I've had is that you know if you have let's say you have a kid, um, let's say you adopt a kid, okay, and this kid starts going to school and he's getting like D, he's like D's and C's, right, on the verge of flunking out, and you know you work with him, you can't demand him to get an A because you set the bar so high that he just might quit on you. But if you say, look, man, can, can we work to get all C's or maybe even like a B minus here and there? And he starts improving. And then you show that encouragement. And then over time, you know, if he's still young enough in school, maybe he gets to the point where he's in high school or in college and now he's getting, he's getting A's. Right. But if you set him like from day one, Hey, you're getting D's right now, but you're going to get an A or, or, or you're going to get in trouble. I, he might rebel even harder. Right away from right. you. What do you think about that? No, I think I think that's a good analogy. I mean, I think that's a good analogy. Um, God met people where they were, you know, not mm-hmm. necessarily where they uh, had to go, because God did understand that it was a process, and it's something that a lot of things, you know, God wanted people to come to on their own conclusion. God did not want to create robots where He told them how to do every single thing. God gives them principles and allow those principles to take root so that men could be self-governing, which is what we see. Self-governing takes time. Self-awareness, self-discovery, realization, those things take time. But it's always better in the long run than just following a set of rules because you come to the conclusion yourself. Do you find that's where people go to uh, when they throw up the objection you know, the Bible condones slavery is that they look to the Old Testament and go, God didn't just straight outlaw it. Is that the reason why they come to that conclusion? I think that is one of the reasons why they come to that conclusion. But I think it's not understanding um, the Bible in this context. And like I said before, this isn't something that God invented. You know, this is something that man invented. God used it to punish people. And also, I'd like to say this, I'd like to say another thing, is that because Christianity is the only one getting a bad rap here. But every major religion engaged in, in, in slavery. Hinduism engaged in slavery. Buddhism engaged in slavery. If the religion was around long enough, it engaged in slavery. Islam, probably more so than any religion, definitely more so than Christianity, engaged in slavery. So I don't know how it's always that slavery is all somehow negatively linked to Christianity when all religions practice slavery. I mean, the Hinduism, they have the caste system. It's built into the into the religion. <laughs> so, but I guess because Christianity is a world religion and it's a it's an easy target, somehow people can conveniently forget about all the other religions that did the exact same thing, if not worse. <laughs> yeah, and we talked we talked we hit on this a little bit, but I want to come back to it where we said the the biblical worldview, right? The Christian worldview the idea that every man is created in the image of God and, you know, all the other principles that you find in scripture about treating people with respect and dignity and love and those sort of things that actually spurred on the emancipation movement in America. So some of the greatest emancipators, you know, whether it's like Wilberforce or even like Lincoln, right. And some of these other characters, they're coming from a Christian worldview. So when you start talking about, 
that the reason why they were pushing so hard for emancipation is because of their Christian worldview. What do people say to that? Well, I, actually, that conversation never comes up to me. Hmm. People never bring that up in the conversation to me. <laughs> you know, it's one of the things that I find, you know, I'm not going to say discouraging, maybe surprising, and you, you probably were a witness to this. When I speak at conferences and when I get invited to speak places, 90% of my audience is white. And I don't understand that. I find that very, very interesting. So some of those questions don't come up to me because when I'm engaged with people who are, you know, who are black, you know, their focus is on slavery. Their focus is on racism. Their focus is on those those issues that we, we've sort of touched on already. Yeah, I um. So one of those one of those videos I did on critical race theory, I talked about um, because people that the concept in critical race theory is that the institutions of America are inherently racist. You know, racist that racism is built into the institutions, and so you know, I brought up the founding documents, and then the interesting thing that I found when I was researching it is that both Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address. And then Martin Luther King in his famous I Have a Dream speech reference back to the same original founding documents, not to say that America was inherently racist, but basically say we have our principles, we're not living up to them, and we have to fight to get us to live up right. to them. And so right. the, the idea that America is built on inherent you know, structures of racism, to me it's like these two guys, if you take Lincoln— and then Martin Luther King Jr., like two of the most famous people in our culture to help, you know, eradicate slavery and, and move our culture into a, a better um, quality of how we treat each other, both reference back to the original documents to say they already said it there. We just need to live up to that, right? Yeah. And, 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 um, and one of the things that, you know, I sort of touched on before is that, like I said, racism well, slavery has always existed, but it's only one culture, the Western culture, that actually abolished slavery. Mm -hmm. But I guess, you know, no one gives credit to that, where people, you know, tend to work, you know, focus on the negative, because, you know, we talk about, like, colonialism and that type of stuff and how horrible it is. There's definitely some horrible things about it. But colonialism actually played a very strong uh, part in the abolition of slavery, because once, once the... Um, the, uh, the abolitionist movement started across Europe, the British Empire, I mean, they, they brought the weight of their military and their economic power to try to eradicate slavery. I mean, if nations wanted to do trade with Britain, they had to agree to abolish slavery. If, 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 um, if their Navy, their Navy actually would sink ships or confiscate ships that they thought were involved in in the slave trade in the colonies that Britain had. They outlawed slavery in places in Africa that probably would be doing slave a lot of slavery today if it hadn't been for it being outlawed through the British Empire. So yeah, we can look at the negative. We can always look at the negative, but those negatives have always existed. At some point, we should give credit where credit is due as well. Yeah, for sure. So when you have people throw out the claim Christianity is a white man's religion. How do you respond to that? Yeah. Well, I'll make the point that Christianity was never a white man's religion. And, 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 and I go back to Pentecost. All right. When the church started, you look at Pentecost and the book of Acts actually lists where the Jews were from who were at Pentecost the day that the church was born. And there were Jews from all over the country, including all over the world, including Africa, the Middle East. They were from all of those places. You also look at the fact that the first non-Jewish convert was the Ethiopian eunuch. And God performed the miracle to bring the gospel to him through the apostle Philip. This Ethiopian eunuch went back to his queen, to Queen Candace, took the gospel message, 
she accepted it. By the fourth century, most of Africa was Christianized. Not that Christianity came, you know, the 16th, 17th century to, to um, from these white missionaries. No, Christianity was, uh, was thriving in Africa before it was even recognized by the Rome, by Rome, by the Roman Empire. We have, you know, we have archaeological records of this. We have, um, we have uh, uh, manuscript records of this. We look at the fact that some of the earliest church fathers, the most influential church fathers, were Africans. We look at Tertullian. We look at Tertullian. We look at uh, Augustine. We look at uh, Origen. We look at some of the most. We look at Athanasius, who was uh, nicknamed the Black Dwarf. Some of the people who had the most influence over Christianity were African. And a lot of these councils that we hear about, like the Council of Trent, all these councils. A lot of those councils started locally in African countries. And I mean, in Africa, like along the, along the Nile. Africa, I mean, Christianity actually uh, sort of incubated in Africa. And when the persecutions came, it spread to Europe. So Christianity actually went from Africa to Europe. And then some of it did come back from Europe to Africa. But the idea that Christianity is this, you know, is, is distinctly European is just not actually true. And actually, also, even looking today, my wife, my wife um, took me on a uh, trip uh, September to Africa. You know, I always wanted to do Africa. That's my, on my bucket list. We went to Kenya. And it was fascinating. I remember when I was there, it was fascinating. I was like, I've seen all these churches there. And so I'm talking to my guy, and I'm like, wow, they saw a whole lot of churches here. And he's like, well, yeah, of course. The country's 85% Christian. I'm like, what? started doing research, there are more Christians in Africa than there are in America. So if Christianity is a white man religion, there are hundreds of millions of Africans who don't know, who don't know that, who are not familiar with that. And if anyone wants to get more information about that, I actually wrote an ebook on that for Ratio Christie. If you go to Ratio Christie's website, uh, you can actually download a free publication that I wrote called, Is Christianity the White Man Religion? And I have the notes and the bibliography to document everything I just said and more. Yeah. And I'll make sure I'll find that and I'll link it in the description of this podcast. So wherever you're listening to or watching this podcast, go to the description. You'll find the link in there uh, of that book. Um, I want to move. I want to kind of now steer us into a direction, right? And we talk about correcting some errors, some, you know, what is race and uh, the foundation of slavery and racism and all these, you know, we, we talk about correcting some errors that people have in their thinking, but really as Christians, like our goal is not just to win um, an informational battle. Like we want to win the heart, hearts and minds of people. So what do you think like the church can do that Christians can do to show forth a good message here in America, to start to make changes in our culture to say, you know, you guys, there's all this sort of tension, you know, y- y'all seeing an issue, but here's the answer. Like, what do you think is our best route forward? I think one of the, tr- the troubling things I see in the church is the church buying, buying into a lot of the CRT stuff. Mm-hmm. Because if you focus on race, then race will be the focus. Um, if you continue to point out our differences, then we will continue to focus on our differences. If we don't gather a, a biblical worldview where we look at the first church being you know united, we look at race not being a biblical concept. We look at the fact that throughout Christianity that the Christian message of salvation was always to all people. We look at the Great Commission where Jesus told his disciples to go and to make disciples of all nations, not just some nations. And we see the um, message from John the Revelator, when he talks about his vision of heaven, you know, being uh, from every tribe, you know, nation and tongue, it is okay to to recognize our differences. But if we start focusing on our differences and using those to try to indict others, then I think we're trying to miss the, the message because Disunity is the 
the strategy of our enemy. So when we see this unity coming up around race, you better believe God is not the author of that. We should not play into our enemy's hands. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, not giving the ground where we don't need to give the ground. You know, I don't. I I talk about that a lot um, when I discuss things with people about critical race theory. Is like, I'm not even going to let you start with that premise because I disagree with that. Um, before kind of arguing in your circle of thought, but let me okay, let me give you a hypothetical. So, you're at a church, and the church has a white man as a preacher. What do you? as a black man, want to hear him say about, or should he say anything about, the racial tension that's in our culture? About the racial tensions in our culture? Mm-hmm. I would want him to have a strictly biblical message, not a message from um, Black Lives Matter, not a message from um, uh, some of these organizations that, that are uh, anti-Christian, I would like for his message to be that we are all equal. We are all made in the image of God. God loves us all. None of us is inferior or superior to anyone else. Christ died for everyone, regardless of color. That is the message I would want to hear from him. Do you think, what is, do you think is the wisest way for a white guy to approach a message? Do you think he should specifically say, Hey, I'm going to preach a biblical message that's addressing something like critical race theory or whatever it is, or just say, today we're talking about, you know, unity or racism or, you know, harmony and kind of hit it more from an indirect route. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just always like coming at it from the Bible. Like today Mm -hmm. we're going to see what the Bible has to say about race (laughs) and may compare that with critical race theory. But I think you got to start with the Word of God. Mm-hmm. I do. I agree. The Word of God is powerful. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So your book, again, I'm going to bring it up here on screen for anybody who might be watching this podcast, The African-American Guide to the Bible. It's still on Amazon. People can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you have a website, don't you, sir? Givingananswer.org. Givingananswer.org. You, you were talking about you had a YouTube channel a little bit uh, earlier. What was that? Yep. Giving an answer is my YouTube channel. <laughs> All right. And so I'll link both of those as well in the description uh, of this podcast. But what are any other um, ending words of wisdom or thoughts for us, Dr. Felder? Yes, I do. I'm glad you asked because I almost forgot until you said that. Remember when I was giving my testimony and I was talking about how I was in bondage to sex and I was in bondage to alcohol. Well, when I became a believer, that didn't just magically go away. It just didn't. Uh, oddly enough though, cursing did. I don't understand that, but but that's a, that's a topic for another day. Cause I used to curse like a sailor for real. But I remember trying to quit drinking and just not being able to. And I remember getting down on my knees in my living room, empty living room. My wife had left me and crying out to God saying, God, if you do not take this away from me, it is going to kill me. And about two weeks later, I went to take a drink. My drink of choice was vodka. I had a fifth of vodka every day. I mean, that, that is what I did. And then and a, and a, what, a gallon, half gallon on, on the weekends. And since I had that drink. I mean, when I when I went to taste that drink, and it, it, it tasted like gasoline, and I had not had a drink since. And I haven't had a desire to have a drink since. Don't even like the smell of alcohol, and that was back in 1998. Now, my my sex addiction, God didn't didn't miraculously uh, deliver me from that. You know, I'm sort of glad because when I when I get to heaven, I, I don't want God to say. Well, you know, I can't give you any points for, you know, overcoming that or resisting this temptation because it wasn't a temptation because I delivered you from it. So I think we all have to have some temptations in our lives so that we can, you know, because that's part of the human condition is resisting temptation, is fighting all temptation. So after a couple of months of, you know, 
of struggling with, with, with having sex. And I remember I had the sex with this young lady who I've been having sex with like before I became saved. And I saw this vision of Jesus, like in here, wasn't out there. And he was crying. And he said to me in the vision, in my mind, you I'm crying because you chose to please yourself over pleasing me. And that had a profound impact on me. I had like, oh my goodness, I had like 200 VHS porno tapes. I feel like, I said VHS, VHS so y'all know how long. <laughs> y'all know a lot long ago what I'm talking about. But I remember that every time I struggled. But from that day, I was celibate for 10 years until the night that the wedding day that I married my current wife. So for 10 years, I was celibate. God delivered me from alcohol. I became free. Those things that I thought I wanted to be free to do are those same things that had me in bondage. I wasn't free. I was in bondage. I was in bondage to those things. And so I had come to know real freedom. And I learned that real freedom through Christ because I was no longer a slave to sin because he who the son sets free is free indeed. Amen to that. Amen to that. Well, hey, I want to encourage everybody who's listening or watching to this podcast, go get the book. It's got a lot of good information there about the reliability of the Bible, but then also moving into the, these racial topics and slavery and it's really good historical stuff in there. Um, I enjoyed getting to know you at the conference, getting to know you here a little bit. So Dr. Felder, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast, sir. Thank you very much for having me.